listening to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, writer, teacher and broadcaster Desiree Reynolds reads excerpts from her novel Seduce and discusses diaspora and race and protest through writing. This episode is brought to you in association with Off the Shelf. Hello, my name is Desiree Reynolds and I am doing this podcast to discuss uh, my book, which is called Seduce, which was published by People Tree Press back in 2013, to also talk about race and protest through writing, diaspora, uh, writing processes, and wherever this preamble may take us. (laughs) So perhaps first a little bit about me. I am from London. I came up to Sheffield to go to uni and never went back. So I'm going to talk about the novel first and then I will talk about what it means to me. Then I will read some extracts from it and then talk about the processes and stuff after that. So seduce... I haven't really thought about it for a long time, to be honest, because I've not been asked (laughs) to think about it. I've been doing other things. Uh, I've been writing quite a lot of short stories. A few of them are being published and have been published online. So working on the second novel, being that writer, that jobbing writer, sometimes means that you you forget what you've done or, you you know, what you've done in the past doesn't take centre stage anymore you kind of moved on um so I'm quite grateful to be able to rethink this pure labour of love so Seduce is set on a mythical Caribbean island and it's an old woman who has died and is attending her own funeral she's mostly miserable, mostly acrid, finds the idea of death like what 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 is this? Um looks at her family, talks about her loves, her past, um, and in that is interwoven the past of this mythical Caribbean island. The book is broken down into chapters. The characters have a chapter each where It's written in first person. I find I enjoy writing in first person quite a lot. I feel like I can then produce a better voice being in first person and more quickly draw a reader in being in first person. So, but then there's quite a few different characters. So I effectively had to be different characters. And whilst that might seem a little bit odd, I do feel as though that we... We carry people with us in a way, and this is just an extension of that. It's almost like pulling out those people that we carry with us, and those people can be alive, and they can be dead, and they can be fleeting. That might be that that person that you saw in the park and wondered about who they were, or that person that served you in a shop, or that person that you may have served in a shop. There's something about them that we think, oh, you might think about a colour that they wore or a look in the eye. And I feel like in a way where as writers we're kind of living thieves, aren't we? 
and we're gathering this information to use at a later date. The idea of having these people within us all is not too shocking to me at all. It seems to be a theme of most of the work that I'm doing recently, which is perhaps the people we carry. So if I think about Seduce, it's probably in its rawest form, a hymn to diaspora. It's imagined Caribbean island and the lives on it lives in all of us who are born of diaspora. That being whether you were born over there and brought here as a baby or whether you were born here and, you know, you go back there and visit relatives and there's that strange disconnect that happens with diaspora. And then out of that comes this kind of beautiful weaving towards each other as a reconnection as diaspora also. So you may not feel like you are from there, but at the same time you are from there. And I feel like that that connection is is amazing. It's hard. It's beautiful. And I think that only people living in terms of living within that, the whole idea of diaspora, understands what that that connection can mean or, or in fact not mean. I wondered, as I was writing this, connecting back to the idea about maybe something being authentic or not authentic, I don't really agree with any of that, to be honest, but it doesn't mean to say that it doesn't plague you or plague your writing. Or, or, you know, your whatever creativity that you choose. And I wondered whether I was good enough to tell a story or whether I was good enough to tell this story. I think I'll always, I'll always worry about that. But perhaps what it is, is at the core of it is who owns a story. That relates to a lot of things, doesn't it, right? So, you know, it relates to politics in the way, it relates to gender politics, race politics, it relates to a whole a class politics, it relates to a whole heap of things. So who who gets to own a story, um, I think is is something that I thinking about seduce and thereby thinking about this recording for the festival of the mind and thinking about my work as a whole made me think, okay, that's that's a theme. Because I don't as a writer, I don't write to themes. I don't feel like I'm starting off a story or a book by thinking about what's the theme I want to cover beforehand. I don't I don't think that works. I think that means it ends up feeling forced and a bit shallow. I think the themes appear. <laughs> themes appear and then I can recognise them after the work is done. And often with an audience or with readers, they can tell me things that I hadn't thought of, hadn't even fully properly worked out and maybe even sometimes living with, but not even acknowledged in the way that somebody with fresh eyes and fresh ears can hear your work and tell you. So Seduce is about so many things. Um, it's about family and the way that family, how family affects us all, how not just family in that kind of lavender smelling, <laughs> beautiful um, way, but also not in that, you know, when it's got to be family drama in that same way either, where it has to be, you know, it's not feast or famine in a way, but I I kind of 
wanted to think about family hate in a way, as well as love and how they operate together. Because we all we we all know what that means in some shape or form. And by that, I don't, you know, found family is as important as, you know, biological family or just units in which we grow up and how we know the same people for years and years and how at the same time we don't know them. That felt like it was quite important to me. So the story is of the gathering of the funeral. It's set over one day. And as people remember, as she as people remember who she was, she remembers who they were. And I guess what I'm what I look at is that how petty jealousies and small selfish acts can play out in families. These acts can gather life and strength and become family myth that's passed on for years and generations even uh, and that the truth cannot be trusted in a family context that sounds funny but it's it's really true how you know you can talk to your mum or talk to your dad or uncles and you know everybody remembers something completely different about the same incident which doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true but we we put ourselves in the truth don't we thereby distorting it a bit and I think the seduce is about that distortion so it's about diaspora it's about distortion about family about loss I guess because seduce is a is a ghost talking about herself and not just loss of life but also loss of opportunity the opportunities to love and the opportunities to embrace who we should have done and that we didn't and just talking about it now we are in the times that we're in feels quite shocking to me actually to think about it in that way but not just shocking but sad too um but seduce is not a sad novel it's not one that's specifically about the commodification of black pain or trauma but more over that it's felt to me like it was an uncovering of perhaps a voice that at the time I hadn't heard of uh, myself that often. So whilst growing up in school in London, we did a lot of, we did, we're lucky, I, I consider myself lucky when I listen to people's, what people's stories of the education in, in, in Britain anyway, I'm like, wow. So, you know, my education in Clapham, it, in a girls' school, no doubt, Actually, we did quite a lot of African-American writers who were big at the time. Uh, stuff like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker are my particular favourites, which I've said before. And I think that also is reflected in not only what I write, but how I write and what I choose to write about. I think those things are also important for writers to think about. What do you choose to write about and then how do you approach it? So my next thing I'm going to do now is read a bit of the novel. As I say, it was written in first person and it was written mostly in Patwa. Now, I took this decision to write it in Patwa because, well, I didn't even take the decision in a way. I think it, the story came to me better. I had I had written like 20 odd, maybe even more thousand words, not in first person, but the dialogue was Patwa and it still didn't feel right. So I had to get rid of it and start again. And Jeremy, who edited this book for People Tree with me, People Tree, was like, yeah, 
no <laughs> yeah start again so um that's that's a very interesting thing to think about as a writer when you've written quite a lot already what does that starting again mean and I feel quite relaxed about being edited now but then you can I think you probably should talk to some of the editors that I've worked with maybe maybe I'm not to be trusted I'm going to read the beginning of the first chapter and it's called In and Around Seduce's House Beginnings. The day opens her legs to let the night in. It moves from a dark lilac to bottomless purple. You wait for a moment to adjust your eyes and against your skin is a smooth coolness. By the light of the moon, you can make out a large structure that almost blots out the horizon. You can't tell if it's a building or something more natural, a shadow, a greater darkness just recognisable against the blackness. Clinging to the edges, you can see movement. The souls sail around chit-chatting and remembering nothing. Souls do that. Visiting so many places, so many people, that they very soon forget where they have been. They only know where they are going, and when they are there, have already started to forget. They wheel overhead and cry loud into the dark, feathers reflecting moonlight, sharp eyes watchful. They bustle and nudge each other, some getting angry about the lack of space, a few circle, waiting for one to go back. Sometimes they nip and scratch. They know they are only there for a short time. Some are bigger than others, some are quiet, but most are loud. And for those that can hear them, their squawking can be heard for miles. There are long claws, their long claws grip tightly to the perches and their small eyes look as if they are trying to remember. So that's the beginnings of it. I said it, I'd do it in Passover, but it, the, this, the beginning isn't, and there's several, there's different chapters that aren't written in Passover, but other ones that are, and I'll read another one in a bit. But the beginning was something to to set it, just to frame what it was that we were talking about. So we're talking about souls and the way that they interchange and swap and wheel and have thoughts of their own and, and a place to be and a place that they're going and a continuous movement. And I think that's what I wanted to get across with this. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read about... Hyacinth. So Hyacinth is the next chapter after this. So Hyacinth is a character that I wanted to, she's, she's that auntie, that disgruntled auntie in everyone's family that's a bit miserable, that has to take things too far, that whose opinion has to be heard, who can fall into being abusive, who could easily be that person that just cusses you out for no reason. She's sad, she's unhappy. I didn't want her to be just this one-dimensional person, obviously, because I I still love her. <laughs> I love all my characters. 
even the bad ones. I love her and I and I wanted to pay her a little homage too because she's just ends up being relegated to just being a bad person and I just I never thought it was fair. And it's also about ageism and again we go back to class and she's actually quite a snob herself and puts down the juice in the family and she uses religion to do that and I felt like in most of us in terms of diaspora have an art that's like this. Hyacinth. Prayers, Jesus, our Father, sweet Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. What a sad time it is for all away. Here to bury the good sister. Now, we know that all truths will be revealed before him. We are naked in the eyes of the Lord. Our secrets will be revealed, Amen. When we walk in the light of God, we walk without sin. We walk in his righteousness. We will be flesh of his flesh, blood of him, blood. But if you sin, you will be cast out before the living God. We're not talking about the sun and moon and stars like them heathens outside. Close your eyes, close them. Feel God move in this room. Feel him. Lock out the filth and wantonness outside this house. Amen. The Lord protect him sheep and let the evil doers be dashed into the fiery pits of hell. Me and this woman had our time. Oh yes, it's true. They may not have been any love lost, but we respect each other. Yes, there was respect. Me come for make sure the old bitch dead. We never like her. Dirty, filthy woman. Make me sick. What are all these women doing in here? These decent law-abiding women. Me? Me here says she get taken. And me come for make sure she gone. So, that's Hyacinth. <laughs> She's, uh, oh, she's tricky. I love her to pieces. But Hyacinth, obviously at the beginning, she chats a bit to the room of with all the mourners. And then we go into her, what she actually is doing there, what she really actually thinks. Hyacinth just embodies that thing, what, we, what I was talking about in terms of the truth, not being quite the truth. You know, I think what I also want to do was to talk about funerals, especially in Caribbean Culture is very performative. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of drink. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of sharing stuff. It can go on all day. That's where all the stories happen. And I wanted Hyacinth to be the person that kind of signals what's about to happen in the rest of of the book. So this one, this is uh, of son who is seduces grandson he calls her nanny it's about him attending the funeral feeling like connected and not connected and going back to the what we talked about or what I talked about in terms of diaspora 
so two characters embody that idea of diaspora um, in the book, and that's that's Pastor Collins and Son. That's his name. When Nanny climbed the hill at the back of the house, she stopped at the clearing she called sacred. I watched from behind a tree. She sat down and I knew she was praying. It was where her mama lay, so she said, and where she was conceived. She rocked gently and mumbled, then raised her voice to the sky. I got bored and thought about going home, but when I looked behind me, I didn't recognise anything and was afraid to walk all that way back in the dark. When I looked at Nanny, I felt safe, though I didn't know where she was going or how the night would end. I was transfixed by the darkness and the light that shifted around her. Now I am fascinated by the will of the Lampies, by the sudden knowledge that they are right, or at least that they have the right. They hold her delicately now and carry her in a cloth of many greens. Sometimes against the background of the hill, it looks as though she is floating and glimpses of her black body can be seen against the land and the hands that carry her. They follow the drummers. And we follow them. I was supposed to leave or die. That was my fate. No one expected anything from me except Lou, who loved me, cared for me, more than Mama ever did or Nanny ever could. Even though she was younger than me, her spirit is older. She protected me from Nanny's disappointment and Mama's indifference. I don't think she knew what she was doing, she just did. She gave me her food, stubbornly stood in the way of the blows and took some for me. It was a trial being brought up in a house of bitter women. Mama couldn't contain it within herself and when it burst out from her, it landed squarely on me. I was supposed to shrivel up. Instead, I took what was between my legs and ran to the mainland to be lost in the sea of desperate black faces, the memory of home hanging over me. Memories emerging. Back then, Nanny rocked and rolled. She paused to let me see where she was heading and then strode forward. She walked in the night like a cat that could see. I walked. She walked. I followed. Every now and then she would stop and wait for me to catch up and then continue. I felt for an instant that this was a moment awash with love and hope. I am not that man to see this and feel this easily. I am not that man. But that magical time, it was so believable. With the moon bright and high in the sky, it was believable that people were there who were not there, that trees moved, that more than we can see not only existed, but moved our limbs and thoughts. I believed it all. Now it feels stale and desperate. There is nothing, was nothing, will always be nothing. What I'm going to talk about now then is about protest and about race and protest through writing. So one of the stories that I tell 
quite often is about my great-grandfather, who died when he was 111, I believe, or 109. I'm not entirely sure. I think it was around that, yeah, which was only about maybe five years ago or so. And he was an extraordinary man and lived in the Jamaican hills, uh, farmed his own food, which is probably why he lived till so long. Um, but he told me when I went to went back to see him, me and my brother went and visited, and he told us about being in Panama, what that was like for him, and how he couldn't tell white people that he could read and write, and that there was points where having to hide that he could read and write was something that struck me when he told me this. I think I'd known this, of you know, I'd known this already from reading and other people talking about this and TV shows and movies or whatever, but to hear him, this, this incredible man with an incredible journey, telling me and my brother about having to hide from white people that he could he could read and write. I feel as though part of my idea of what protest through writing is, is even the fact of writing is the protest in a way, because we weren't ever meant to be able to do things like this. Writing, <laughs> we weren't supposed to be able to just put our words in this way and obviously you know writing comes in so many different forms it doesn't it doesn't have to be something that's written on the piece of paper and or published every time I do start something I do I do think about my great granddad and think about what a privilege it is that I'm in this position that I can do it in this way and that he in his way fought for that for me and that's just something that I feel like is important because when we talk about race, we end up, and I'm connecting this to writing, but when we talk about race in general, when we're talking about racism, I suppose, we're often told that it's not that important anymore and that things should have moved on and why do we keep talking about it? And I think it's it's because it still affects us and, you know, obviously now things are, the tide is turning quite a bit in a way I'm not necessarily that confident that it's going to stay turned, but now we're having quite big and open discussions that black communities and brown communities and other marginalised communities have actually been having for decades and decades and decades. So this is why I'm not necessarily that hopeful, but kind of, <laughs> kind of hopeful. So that's what I mean about the idea that somehow even just writing is a form of protest and also is a form of resistance for any marginalised community. When I think about protest, I suppose in activist circles, protest can mean one thing and perhaps the woman who writes a letter for her neighbour who is struggling with the schooling of her children, who have problems or may have learning differences and that she's writing for her neighbour and then that is that is a form of resistance and that is a form of protest and that we open up what our definitions of protest mean and I suppose for me calling myself an activist is quite hard 
because it feels like it should be, again, this performative thing and not just quiet resistance doesn't feel like it's resistance at all. And I don't think that's right or true. So connecting that to my writing then, I'm concerned with ordinary people. I'm concerned with ordinary things. I think I've heard this quote recently a few times now, but I think actually Saul Bass, (laughs) Saul Bass may have said this, is making ordinary things extraordinary or, or finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. And I hope that's, I hope that's what I'm doing. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.